very good morning. It's Money Talk with James Ross. It's coming up to 16 minutes past eight. And let's welcome our guests uh, to the program. First of all, Asian fund management uh, industry consultant, Stuart Oldcraft. Uh, Stuart, our Wednesday regular. Nice to have you on the show as normal, Stuart. Good morning, James. And uh, everything is sort of bright and sunny this morning, I think. Oh, that's good Good to hear. And uh, let's see whether it's bright and sorry, sunny with Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent in Washington. I guess the sun, sun's gone down there, Barry, but uh, what's it like? Well, you're right, James. Good morning to you. It's, uh, you know, getting darker. Our uh, North American summer here is, is uh, fading. It's fading away, but it's been a lovely day and we've had good temperatures with low humidity. Seems to be quite a lot of talk uh, uh, in South Africa at the moment, guys, about the BRICS uh, conference and what's going on there. Uh, particularly, uh, the subject seems to be uh, around de-dollarization. Uh, Stuart, do you see that that's uh, going to be important to the global economy going forward? Um, not necessarily. Uh don't forget the BRICS. I mean, BRICS is a is a big subject. It's um, it, it, the you know, major emerging market countries: uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. They want to work together, but they all have very different agendas. Um, and and the the latest sort of statement that they want to be a representative of the global South. Well, Russia is hardly South. Um, China is hardly South, uh, although. Um, Brazil and India and South Africa are, but, but they're, they're looking to take on new members. Whether they will um, achieve their objectives is very doubtful, though. Um, yes, they are looking to add a, uh, or they have been talking, and now they say they're not talking, about uh, maybe creating a new currency, a BRICS currency. Uh, yes, they're also talking about adding new countries to, to their membership. Um, I think the latest country, Argentina, um, but they probably will find difficulty getting um, the, the acronym to work when they keep adding new countries. The acronym, <laughs> the acronym will stop. <laughs> um, so, yes, there's a, I mean, they are a justifiable economic group. But I think one, the, the one really serious problem is, do any of the countries in the rest of the world that want to join them want to join a club that involves Russia? Mm, that's and the I question. Mm. That is a big, big issue. I'm, I'm sure Barry will have something to say about that. And Barry, you know, do you think the dollar's under <clears throat> threat? Not really, but I do think that it's significant, James, that um, so many countries would like to move away from dollar dominance. And the BRICS, I think, are, are moving quite successfully to promote the use of local currencies, in other words, their own, in trade relations. And watching the proceedings on the first day of this summit in Johannesburg, is very interesting that, that uh, the Russian president uh, said that only 28% of BRICS trade among each other is now done in dollars. That's uh, that's a big change from just a few years ago. Are we sure of that figure? It seems a fairly low figure, but uh, um, I suppose that uh, uh, things have, have pulled back since last year's start of the Ukraine war, have they? Yeah, look, it's true because all of the sanctions that were levied against Russia for the war in Ukraine really made it difficult for trading in dollars to go forward uh, with Russia. So as a result, 
when China and India are buying oil and gas from Russia, they're using renminbi, and I think the renminbi, by the way, is the big winner in the sanctions against Russia. Uh, the other currencies are not nearly as strong. No one is really uh, saying that they want to hold Indian rupees or South African rand or Brazilian currency. But uh, look, I, I think uh, Stuart and I are in accord on this one. It's potentially quite significant that these countries are cooperating. The big change from the last 20, 30 years, no one's talking about socialism. They're talking about a market framework. They're looking for foreign direct investment. And they're talking about what the South African banking chief of, of Standard Bank called inclusive multilateralism. But clearly, this is a group that wants to have reform of global governance institutions like the IMF to give developing countries more say and break the dominance of the Europeans and the Americans. Uh, I'm impressed by the moderation in the group and by the rather extensive uh, planning that has gone into this meeting. I think that if they do bring in Saudi Arabia, uh, that really gives them some financial clout that for their new development bank, which is based in Shanghai, has been missing up to now. But um, as Jim, uh, the, 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 the person who founded Jim the, the, Jim O'Neill called the, this, uh, the, symbolically, it's exceedingly important, but they haven't really achieved much in 15 years. I guess China is one of those that's pushing harder at the moment to uh, move things along and perhaps the renminbi uh, will be the benefactor uh, of this. Let's turn to China, though, uh, Stuart. The interest rate cut, um, you know, smaller than expected on Mondays. Well, on Monday, what was your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th I think the biggest problem that China has got is that it's um, got massive foreign, or not foreign debt, it's got massive debt in the property sector. The property sector is on the point of collapse, and the, and, and the PBOC can't make its mind up as to whether it really wants to save the banks, uh, save the save the property companies, or force the banks to uh, help uh, bail out the property companies, which will then cause for the banks uh, probably a fairly significant loss. So there is a, they're in a bit of a dilemma. Interest rate cuts having been made so far in China are far below the levels that were wanted or needed. But at the same time, China doesn't really want to cut interest rates when the rest of the world is, is now on higher interest rates. And, that's, um, and, and, and so that, that also is causing something of a dilemma. So my, my bottom line is that I think that the, there is a great lack of experience, particularly in the uh, People's Bank of China, in these sorts of circumstances, and they are not clear in their own mind what they really want to do. There's a lot of dithering going on, and, and we could have to wait quite a long while before we see any outcome. Uh, meanwhile, property companies with um, at least 150 billion US dollars worth of debt uh, are on the point of collapse, and, um, and, and that could actually happen before any, any further moves occur in China. I guess one of the worries is that uh uh, you know, this contagion would spread a bit more than it already has done um, to the banks. And, uh, you know, turning to the U.S., I guess the banks in, in the U.S., the regional banks, Barry, particularly,
particularly at the moment uh, seem to be uh, still suffering. S&P cutting ratings and outlook for multiple uh, U.S. regional banks uh, overnight. What are your thoughts on the banking sector in the U.S.? I think it's strong. And I think that this move to um, uh, cut the ratings on the regional banks is uh, is okay. I, I think that the uh, capital requirements are, are stronger here than they've been elsewhere. I think it's a cautionary tale. And uh, we're all trying to adjust to higher interest rates. And speaking of interest rates, let me ask you, Stuart, do you think that China's in the risk of, of getting into a deflationary downward spiral? Yes, it is. And I think that is one of the reasons why uh, we're seeing, uh, one of the reasons why we're seeing this property collapse. Because, you know, as, as, as indicated previously, um, there are a lot of empty properties, there are a lot of incomplete properties, and property prices are falling. So those people who would be likely to buy property are waiting, and they're waiting for property prices to fall much further. And that can't help property companies trying to sell their properties. So uh, there, is a, there is a real danger of deflation going on right now in China, and, and that would be very damaging to their economy and probably will create an element of contagion, certainly into Hong Kong and many other parts of the Asian region. So I guess, you know, Hong Kong, you know, trying to talk things up at the moment. Financial Secretary Paul Chan saying that the uh, stock market has plenty of room to grow. Um, uh, you know, what is, Stuart, going to be the effect uh, on uh, Hong Kong, perhaps also of, of a lack of tourism coming in here? Well, there's no, there's no lack of tourism, actually, James. The tourists are coming. They're just not doing what they were doing uh, before COVID. They're, they're, they're coming far more as individuals. They're not coming as, uh, as packaged groups. They're not being bussed around to the various jewellery and um, uh, retail stores where they, they were sort of buying stuff. They, they want to get and see the Hong Kong culture. They want to see the Hong Kong sites and the museums. A lot of people like going to the Palace Museum here, for example. And, um, and so, yes, they are coming but they're not spending money the way that uh, they were previously. And, and therefore, Hong Kong has got to work a lot, lot harder at uh, sort of reorganizing itself to accommodate the new style. Barry, let's just turn back to one of the events that's going to be happening this week, uh, the Jackson Hole meetings. Uh, Jerome Powell expected to speak on, on Friday. Uh, what are we expecting out of that? I think that uh, Mr. Powell is going to say, let's be cautious. We have not won the inflation battle. We have brought it down, but we have not defeated inflation. I don't think there's going to be anything dramatic, James. Last year, he was, in fact, very insistent on saying we're going to take tough measures to bring down inflation. And in fact, that has occurred. Interest rates have gone up at a faster rate than at any time in 20 years. And in fact, the interest rate is now, as we've talked about it, as you mentioned at the beginning, 10-year Treasury bond is at 4.3%. Housing, the mortgage interest rate is at 7%. You know, I'm, I'm always thinking of this lag in monetary policy. Uh, I don't think that anyone is now talking recession ahead. All that talk really dominated discussion for the past year. But in fact, the higher interest rate 
on mortgages means that a lot of people are having to reach much deeper into their pockets to finance a home purchase and to keep current on their mortgage payments. Hmm. It could be that we're going to see a real slowdown in the second half of the year. That's probably what I'm looking for from Mr. Powell's speech. And Stuart, are you looking for any any indicators particularly from uh, for, from Jerome's words? Well, no, I, I, I'll go along with what Barry says. Um, <clears throat> bear in mind that, that, that um, my view is that we'll see another Fed, increase, uh, Fed interest rate increase, 25 basis points, potentially in September. Um, I think that might be enough to um, finish it all off. But inflation is a key worry, and full employment is also a key worry in the United States. But it's also a positive thing. But when you've got full employment, then there are less benefits having to be paid, and, and there are higher taxes being received. So uh, it's a, there is a dilemma going on in the, in, in the U.S., just like it is in many other parts of the world. Um, but I think interest rates are, are, are going to go up, and that will be seen negatively, particularly by um, those that have got mortgages still to be repaid. Stuart Oldcroft is uh, Asian Fund Management uh, Industry Consultant and Barrywood is RTHK's International Economics Correspondent.